Hey there, and welcome to the Foundry Church Podcast. My name is Hank, digital pastor here at the Foundry Church, and I just want to say we're so glad that you're here. Whether you're checking us out for the very first time, you've heard about us and have been checking us out for a couple weeks, or if you're one of our longtime members or Foundry family members, we're so grateful that you're here. We're really excited to share this series, The Everywhere of Christmas, with you. It gives us an exciting way to look at the Advent season and see God in some ways that maybe we haven't seen him before. If you want to learn more about our community, who it is that we are and what it is that we believe and what we're about, you can head to our Facebook page, search The Foundry Family, and look for our Anvil logo, or you can go to our website. You'll be able to find the link for that in today's show notes. We're excited to share with you this series, again, the everywhere of Christmas. Make sure that you tune in and listen. Now we're going to hand it off to Pastor Seth, our lead pastor, who's going to be taking us through this series. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Welcome. My name is Seth. This is The Foundry, where we're all about a better you and a better world. Uh, I hope and trust that after this weekend, your hearts and your bellies are full of love and sweet potatoes, that you've had a wonderful weekend. Uh, Actually, before we get started, I had an awesome thing that I got to participate in uh, this past Tuesday. I want to show you a picture here. Two of my two of my buddies, Eric and Frank Wise, were baptized on Tuesday, and so it was a very very cool thing. They're down here, so make sure you say hey to them and congratulate them. So we're excited that they're part of the family, and you guys are here. Love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so we begin a new series this week. They're old news. Get get over them. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we begin a new series this week called The Everywhere of Christmas, and I'm really excited for it. We're, we're going to be exploring some of the Christmas traditions, how the gospel is all around us, and how there's this deeper message of hope found within the Christmas story, okay? So I'm going to give you the outline in advance this time so that you can kind of follow along and you know how much longer till lunch, okay? So here's the outline, two incarnations, two calendars, two parties, one truth. That's how we're going through this whole thing, okay? So let's start with the two incarnations. We're gonna start with reading part of like the traditional Christmas story found in the book of Matthew. Matthew is introducing us to Jesus in the beginning of his gospel. He gives us this long genealogy. And then in chapter, uh, chapter one, verse 18, it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save, pe- he will save his people from their sins." All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph uh, woke up, he did what an angel of the Lord commanded, uh, commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. So in verse 21, the angel tells Mary, uh, tells, tells Joseph, Mary will have a son, you will name him Jesus because he will be the one that saves the people from their sins. 
Okay, now you might want to just, if you have a notes or Bible or something, you might want to highlight this because we will come back to this like eventually towards the end. In verse 23, it says they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. One of my favorite descriptions of Jesus, uh, God with us. He's moved into the neighborhood. He is among us. He is living among us. So the angel shows up and says that Mary's getting ready to, is going to have this baby, and she will give birth to this baby who will be God in the form of a human hanging out with us, and he will save us from our sins. So Jesus is this incarnation of God. Jesus is the divine in human form. Jesus is God with a face. He is the incarnation. Now, when you get into the Gospel of John, John introduces us to Jesus in a slightly different form. He doesn't uh, start with like the birth story of Jesus. He starts uh, from a completely different direction, if, if you're familiar with this. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John takes us back to the story of creation in order to introduce us to Jesus. And then later in the passage, he actually refers to Jesus as the word made flesh. So he is the word that was with God, that was God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Nothing exists without him. So you take this, this idea and you combine it with something that Paul says in the book of Romans where he talks about God is seen and understood clearly from all that has been made, and it brings us to this idea is that, uh, that essentially you have this idea of the incarnation of creation. Creation is like this original incarnation, the word made flesh. God has breathed God's self into this very thing. So you might want to make a highlight in this passage in verses four and five. In him was the life, and the light was in uh, the life, and that, I'm struggling to talk. It's like everything's jumbled a little bit. Yeah, it's like, uh, like Thanksgiving, oh, we did Thanksgiving last night instead of Thursday because of some scheduling stuff. Like I'm still hyped up on like cranberry stuffing or something. I don't, I don't know what the deal is. Thank you guys for being here. <laughs> Those of you who are here. All right, so where were we? Let's start that again. Uh, okay. Check out four and five. In him was the life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light that shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. All right, so you have these two incarnations. The incarnation of creation, where God has infused God's self into all that is. You have this idea of the word that was a part of creation that has now become flesh that is the Christ. So you have the incarnation of creation, and you have the incarnation of Christ. These two different ways that God has made God's self known. These two different ways that God has revealed God's self. Two different expressions of the same being, which means these two different ways must be complementary. Two different expressions of the same God, which means that these two different expressions must mutually affirm one another. Okay, that's the two incarnations. The second thing is this, the two uh, calendars. Two calendars, this is where we get really interesting if you're into boring stuff. Uh, so the two calendars, <laughs> it's not boring, it's good, I promise, just stay with me. There's been all different kinds of ways that people, people groups throughout the years, throughout human history have attempted to track things like seasons and times, like in, in the moon and the sun and how all that works, right? You've got lunar calendars, you've got solar calendars, you've got lunar solar calendars, and it's really important stuff. It's really important stuff now, it was really, really important then, like when you were 
like planting your own gardens and depending on what you grew and the harvest and all this stuff, like you wanted to make sure when you knew when the proper time to plant was so that you would have food to eat so like, you know, you, you wouldn't die. Is important stuff for your survival. So in 45 BC, Julius Caesar comes along and he uh, initiates what's known as the Julian calendar. He institutes the Julian calendar. And this becomes the primary calendar of the Roman Empire from 45 BC all the way, it kind of expands across the Western world until about the 1500s, 1582. So the Julian calendar has a good run in human history. Now, the problem with the Julian calendar, if you're familiar with this at all, is that it was just a little bit off. So a calendar year for the Julian calendar was 365.25 days, which might not seem like a big deal, but over the course of time, it makes, makes a pretty big difference. So what happens is, as time goes by, the dates on the calendar begin to shift out of line with what's happening like in the earth and with the sun and with the moon. Right? So this begins to cause some problems. So in 45 BCE, you have the Julian calendar, then you have the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and you have the establishment of the church after the death of Jesus, then somewhere around the late 300s, early 400s, you have the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church. Right? They come to power. Then by the 1500s, you have a guy, uh, Pope Gregory VIII, who comes into power. Pope Gregory VIII, when he steps into his position, there's a discrepancy in the calendar. And they're trying, the, the church is trying to set the date for Easter, and that's a big deal, right? That's like one of the primary things on the Christian calendar is setting the date for Easter. But the problem is, is that things are now out of line, right? The date for Easter is not a fixed date, right? You know this. It's not a fixed date. It's, it, it's got some flex to it. It's actually based on, like, the moon. The date of Easter is set uh, by, by being the first Sunday after the full moon that occurs on or after the spring equinox, the equinox being, right, when the day and the night is the same length, it's equal, hence the name equinox. So it's based on the full moon uh, that is on or after the, the spring equinox. So this happens twice a year. In the spring, it always falls between March 19th and March 21st on our current calendar. So Easter is essentially predicated on, on the lunar cycle rather than an exact historical date. So by the time Pope Gregory VIII comes into power, this problem with the Julian calendar slipping is that it's out of line now with the spring equinox, which means it's really difficult for the Catholic Church to schedule Easter. So Pope Gregory comes along, and they make some adjustments, they make some tweaks, they add a leap year, a few leap days, that sort of thing, so that the calendar will better align with what's actually happening in the Earth and the rotation of the Earth and the solar and lunar calendars. And they put this new calendar into place in October 1582, right? So that's the calendar that we've been working off. It's, it's the, the calendar that we use is the Gregorian calendar. That's the current one. Now, you may be thinking, why, why do we care? It's a lot of useless information. Stay with me. Hopefully, this will all come together. Let's talk about the two parties, okay? Two, incar two incarnations, two calendars, two parties. Let's talk about Christmas. Let's talk about winter solstice. In the Christmas tradition, we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Uh, we celebrate the birth of the Christ child, who, as Matthew said, is the Savior who has come to save the world from our sins. Jesus uh, is the Word made flesh. He is a part of this whole thing. How do we celebrate this wonderful day? Well, we put up the trees. We decorate the house. We get family together. We have a meal. We give gifts to one another, this beautiful thing, and we express our gratitude that unto us the Savior has been born. Now, here's the thing about the Christmas celebration. 
is that there's endless debate and discussion surrounding like the wins and the whys and the hows of the tradition. Now, obviously, the reason is, is, is the same, right? The reason is the same. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus, but there's all these other questions about like the dates and the times. Uh, and there's all different kinds of theories and ideas and understandings of it because the Bible actually doesn't give us a specific date of birth. The Bible doesn't give a specific date of the birth of Jesus, which means there's no way for us to absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, know. They give us the death, of, death date of Jesus, we, we, we know that, but we don't have an exact date on the birth. Many scholars suggest that this is because the, the Jews at the time didn't really celebrate birthdays in general. So this wasn't like that big of a thing. We don't, we don't celebrate birthdays. Um, but many people say that it wasn't until the fourth or fifth century that you have the, the signs of like the first Christian fest of feast, the feast of Christmas, right? So uh, the first recorded date on a Christian calendar that is celebrating the birth of Christ on December 25th is in 336 CE. This is under the reign of Emperor Constantine, who was the first Christian Roman emperor. That's the first date that we have a recorded instance of it, right? So now, some will suggest, yeah, that's, that's why we do it on that day. Some will suggest that that date, the 25th under Constantine, was, um, was to replace the celebration of Sol Invictus. This was a thing that the Romans did somewhere around 270 CE, like 60-something years before Constantine. You have Emperor Aurelius, and Aurelius uh, like introduced the cult of Sol Invictus. Sol Invictus uh, means the unconquered sun, so they're worshiping the unconquered sun god, and this unconquered sun god, the Sol Invictus, becomes like the primary deity of the Roman Empire, and so in, 270, in 274, 62 years before Constantine, you have uh, the 25th, Aurelius is dedicating a temple to Sol Invictus. So they're celebrating the celebration, the birth of the unconquered sun god on the 25th, which at this time, under the Julian calendar, happened to be in line with the winter solstice. This would make pretty good sense, right? That even in the dark time of the year, the sun cannot be conquered. So some people suggest that the reason we have Christmas on the 25th is because the 25th has to do with what was originally this pagan practice, this pagan ritual that the church kind of took over. They figured that people were already worshiping the sun, S-U-N, on this date. Why don't we replace that with the worship of the birth of the sun, S-O-N, right? This all happens under Constantine. Now, many other people say, well, that's a bit ridiculous. We actually have dates for the birth of Jesus, and we, can, we, we get these dates by connecting it to the death of Jesus, which is really interesting, right? Some people say in the Gospel of John, John says that Jesus died on the 14th of Nisan, which is the 25th of our calendar, 25th of March. And so there's this tradition that says that the death date of Jesus, March 25th in our calendar, was actually also the conception date of Jesus, that this is when the Spirit intervened and Mary conceived for the, Mary conceived on the 25th. I don't know how they make that connection. That's beyond my pay grade, but there's many sources that, that affirm and support this idea. So what they do then is they say, well, the death date is the 25th of March. The conception date is the 25th of March. If you take March 25th and you add nine months to it, what do you get? December 25th. And you have the birth of Jesus on December 25th. Okay. A lot of information. There was also a Christian treaty uh, coming out of North Africa in the 4th and 5th century called On Solstices and Equinoxes. And in that whole treaty, 
they kind of did the same thing where they tied the birth of Jesus to the, to the, winter, uh, to the winter equinox to the March 25th conception stuff, tying this all together. And then some people say that the early Christian calendar would have primarily been uh, determined by what was happening on the earth anyways, like the rotation of the sun, the moon, the earth, how that all works together. So it would be natural for them to align the birth of Jesus with this kind of special date. So all of that to say, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the one who came to save the world from sin on December 25th. We know why we do it, but we're not really sure like why we do it, when we do it. Now, let's talk winter solstice, the other party. So from like a meteorological viewpoint, the winter solstice is the beginning of winter. Some of you know this, some of you might not. Just stay with me either way. It's the shortest day of the year, which also makes it the longest night of the year. Uh, the term solstice means sun stands still. And so what happens is as you get closer and closer uh, to, to, towards the end of December, the sun is like lower and lower in the sky. When you get to the solstice, it's like at the lowest point, the, the shortest day, the longest night, it stands still for what looks like a couple days. We can't notice the movement in, in, in our own like uh, naked eye. But then on the 25th, what you have three days later is you have essentially the sun begins to rise again and week after week it gets a little bit higher and higher heading into spring. Now, this whole thing, this whole thing is what has really led many cultures and people throughout history to celebrate this day, the winter solstice, as the rebirth of the sun. This is what Aurelius was doing under his time in the Roman Empire with Sol Invictus. This is what the Celtic people groups have been doing for like thousands and thousands of years. Long before the celebration of Christmas, the Celts have been celebrating winter solstice. In fact, there's evidence of solstice celebrations going back to like as far as like 4,000, 5,000 BC. So in the Celtic thinking and idea and mythology type stuff, there's, this, there's these two twin uh, god kings, right? There's the oak king and there's the holly king. The oak king represents light. The holly king represents darkness. And so they're battling throughout the year. And so when it gets to the winter solstice, the oak king becomes victorious, which allows for the return of the sun. This is why they celebrate this. This is what is celebrated, that the oak king is victorious and the light can now return. And they do things like decorate the oak tree, they have a big meal with family. They offer sacrifices. They light fires. They cut mistletoe. They light the Yule log. All things you may have heard of and been familiar with. And all these little rituals they do, they aren't just like these cute little things. Like they had these larger meanings. Like these weren't just fun little traditions. They, these were spiritual practices because unlike us, right, we're a couple thousand years removed from this. With our understanding of science and how the world works, we understand that this is a cycle, it rotates, we know it's gonna tilt back, we understand all this stuff. They didn't know this yet. They didn't understand that this is how it works. So they believed that they must engage in these spiritual practices so that the sun could actually be reborn. The thought being that the universe is this reality that we are participating in, where our actions affect like the celestial bodies and their movement throughout the year. So it wasn't just we do these little things for fun. It was like we have to do these things and it's really important to help so that the sun can be reborn because the sun is like the thing that we need to survive and if we don't do these things, then like, you know, again, we, we, we could die. It's important that we do these things. Okay, so two incarnations, two calendars, two parties. Let me give you a couple little things and then we'll get to the one truth. If you go back to Bethlehem, 
We have the birth of Jesus. The Bible doesn't give us a specific date. Then you have the life and the death of Jesus. Then, after the death of Jesus, you have the expansion and the spread of the church, right? You have the, the sending out of the disciples. They go from Judea to Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. I wanna show you a map of, of the spread of Christianity by century. Okay, uh, this may be hard for you to kind of see. Just go with me. Uh, oh, look, it's up there. It's right here. It's up there. It's both. Let's do the big one. Sure, why not? I can't point to it. Wait, do the small one first. Do the small one first. Okay, so we're going to start right here. And there, so there's a color key here. This kind of shows you by century. The first one right here, it's first century. That's obviously Israel. That's where the whole thing starts. It's the darkest. Now, up here, uh, we'll just move over to Italy because that's the easiest to identify when you can't actually see things. Um, move over to Italy, and you could see like all this red in here. This is second, third, fourth, fifth century. Primarily fourth and fifth century. This area above like here is the Alps, and then this reddish, orangish area, that would have been like the Celtic region in the fourth and fifth century. So you can see by this map that it's in the fourth and fifth century as Christians are going out into the world spreading this Jesus gospel message that it's in the fourth and fifth century that they begin to intermingle with the, uh, with the Celtic people. So when the Christians, when they come out of the Mediterranean, right, where they start in, in Israel, when they come out of the Mediterranean and they begin to evangelize the, the Celtic world, the Celts don't really want anything to do with, with the message because they're not speaking the right language. Like they don't have any like Jewish reference points. They say, hey, there's this guy, Jesus. He's come to fulfill the law. What's the law? What's that? Well, it's the thing that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. What's a Moses? Like, there's nothing to, to bounce things off of. There's no starting point for them. So they have to go about it a different way. It's not possible for the Celtic people to understand the Christian experience through these theological concepts of, uh, of, of Christ. So when the Christians <clears throat> want to introduce Celts to Christ, they have to figure out, well, how do they understand things to work? How do they understand the world to work? How do they understand the heavens, the earth? How do they understand what is it that they celebrate? Well, they don't have any like Jewish insights, but they do have this deep connection to what's happening in the earth, in the environment, to what's happening in the elements around them, like with the winter solstice. So when the Celts are thinking and talking and, and preparing for the rebirth of the sun, S-U-N, the Christians look at it and they go, oh, wait a second, we, we know this story actually. The story about the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it? That's the story you're telling? We know that story too. Like, let us give you a little bit more depth to the thing you're actually doing. You're talking about the rebirth of the sun, S-U-N. We're talking about the power that's beyond that power that will light everything in the cosmos. We're talking about the birth of the sun, S-O-N. Now think again when this is happening. This is happening in the fourth and fifth century, which means it's under the Julian calendar. This is when Aurelian de <clears throat> declares the celebration of Sol Invictus, the, 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 the unconquered sun god. It's happening on December 25th, which at this time is the winter solstice. It's also around the same time that around 60 years later, you have Constantine becoming the first Roman Christian emperor. Uh, and this is when we have the first instance of the Christmas feast being celebrated on December 25th. So in the fourth and fifth century, you have the Sol Invictus, you have the Christmas feast, and you have winter solstice all happening on the same day. It's all happening on December 25th. 
Now, if you fast forward over a thousand years or so, and you get into the 1500s and into the reign of Pope Gregory VIII, you have a thousand plus years of like all your little practices and traditions to set in. A thousand years of this connection between Christmas and solstice. A thousand years that we get in the habit and routine of this is just what we do. So when Pope Gregory VIII decides to adjust the calendar, there's a problem. And it's not just with setting the date for Easter. The problem now becomes what do you do for Christmas? What do you do for Christmas? Because of the slipping of the calendar, of the Julian calendar that was just a touch off, there is now a three-day gap between the Christmas feast on December 25th and the winter solstice on the 22nd. Falls three days short. Which means now we're in a bit of a predicament. Do we celebrate Christmas? This is in the 1500s, right? 1580. Do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th because that's when we've always done it? Or do we celebrate Christmas on the winter solstice because that's how we've always done it? What do you do? What do you do? There's a three-day gap. So there's endless debate and discussion about how do we correct this? What do we do? Where do we place this? How do we move forward from here? We have to put the date on the calendar. Christmas is important to the Christian calendar. We get it. What do we do? And then somebody was sitting around the table, and they said, wait a second. Three days. Three days? What do we know about three days in the story of Jesus? What? What? Three Jesus was in the tomb for three days, and then he rose again. That's perfect. Let's do that. That actually works out better than I had even hoped for. That would work out better than if we had planned it. So they put Christmas on December 25th, three days after the winter solstice. This all now aligns and connects. You have Christmas connecting with the death, burial, and resurrection story of Easter. Because as the sun begins to set, it gets shorter and shorter days. You get to the lowest day of the winter solstice, the longest night, and then all of a sudden it stands still for two or three days. Jesus is in the grave, is in the tomb for two or three days. And then on the 25th, when the sun begins to rise, you have the celebration of Christmas on Christmas morning and the birth of the sun as the sun is rising now and going back higher into the sky. Brilliant. Brilliant. What a great idea that guy had, whoever he was. Yeah. Oh, funny how that works out. So here's what's really cool, too. Not only that, but there's this, like, this one truth thing. And, and this is what, to me, is like this incredible, the incredibly powerful message of Christmas, is that regardless of how we came to celebrate Christmas on the 25th, what's fascinating to me is like how early Christians were taking the message of Christ around the world, right? This is kind of why we're calling this series The Everywhere of Christmas, because the early Christians, they were like tuned into this idea of, of the Christ that is through all, over all, in all, and through all. This Christ that is everywhere, this Christ that you can't be away from. Um, because as the gospel is moving out of Israel, they begin to encounter all these different cultures and ideas and beliefs and religions and different people groups. And, and so rather than viewing these differences as a threat and trying to destroy the people and their beliefs and practices, they, they operate from the understanding that their God is the one true God and there's nowhere that their God isn't. So they observe the thing that's happening and then they simply go, oh, yeah, I see what... I see what you're doing, I see what you're doing, let me show you how this ties to the bigger story. And so this is what we see happening in the fourth and fifth century with the Celts and Christianity and Christmas and the winter solstice. And I'm aware that sometimes people take issue with like the connection of these things. 
connecting Christmas to what's considered to be this like pagan holiday and practices the winter solstice. Because the thought is, well, it seems to minimize or undermine the birth of Christ. But that's not really how the early Christians approach things, right? Rather than seeing these things as being opposed to one another, when you understand the idea of the two incarnations, the incarnation of creation and the incarnation of Christ, what you see is that the winter solstice and Christmas are kind of the same story. They're kind of the same story. And what we see happening in, in the cosmos is just another way to tell the story of Jesus. And so when you understand that what's happening in the cosmos is just another way to tell the story of Jesus, it helps you to see how these two incarnations are in fact complementary. They're working with each other. They work to affirm one another, right? That's what we said in the very beginning, that if these two things are the two different descriptions of the same God, they have to complement and affirm one another. That's why we're calling this the everywhere of Christmas. So let's think through this a little bit deeper, like maybe on a more personal level, like maybe put yourself in the shoes of being a Celtic person in this region at this time, right? You're a hunter-gatherer. You're deeply connected to the earth and the seasons because your survival depends on it. You're living in a region of the earth that gets really, really cold. You're living north of the Alps in this whole region. It gets really cold, and then in the winters, it gets really dark really early, it's really dark really early. The days are starting to get shorter, uh, which, you know, with our time change and stuff, we're starting to experience. It was dark at like 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock yesterday, and I was like, what the heck? Now I got five hours with the kids inside. With, you know what I'm saying? It's getting really dark really soon. <clears throat> the trees are bare, if you're there, not here so much. The ground is covered in snow. Your food supplies are now going to begin to be a bit limited, you, you have a lot of questions about like, will we have enough? Did we save enough? Did we store enough? And, and there's not much you can do about it until spring anyways. You kind of just stuck. Do we have enough food and supplies to get us through the death of winter? This is a time of potential despair. There's not much left for us to do. Are we going to make it? So this festival, this ritual, this practice that's tied to the, the, the invoking the rebirth of the sun would seem really important if you're these people, wouldn't it? The times are tough, and they're only going to get tougher because this is just the beginning of winter. And the darkness has been growing and growing and growing, and now it's the darkest day of the year. We need some hope that something will help get us through. We need some hope that we will make it through this darkness, that the darkness will not prevail, that the darkness will not be our demise. And so if we're the Celtic people, then we find this little glimmer of hope in the rebirth of the sun, that on the solstice, the, sun, the sun's descent has stopped. The sun stands still, and then three days later, the light begins to grow again. The light begins to grow, and the darkness is now shrinking. This is the announcement of creation, that the light is growing and darkness has overcome it. See, now let's go back and look at our two passages we started with. How do Matthew and John introduce us to Jesus? She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place uh, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus is Emmanuel, 
God with a face. He is God with us, the one who stepped into our world to save the people from their sins. And then what does John say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus is the word through which creation has come, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What is it that the Celts are celebrating at the winter solstice? It's that in the deepest darkness, the darkest time of the year, literally, figuratively, the darkest time of the year, that the light of the sun, S-U-N, has not been defeated, but is now growing, is now growing, and they have hope because of it. What is it that Christians are celebrating at Christmas? That God dwelled among us to save us from the darkness. That Jesus is the light. That he is the sun, S-O-N. And this sun is the light that the darkness has not overcome. And we have this new hope because of him. So this this is the one incredible truth. In light of the two incarnations, in light of the two celebrations, and what is to me this incredibly powerful message of Christmas, a message that we all need to hear from time to time, maybe a message that you need now, today. Dr. Alexander Shia says this, that the deepest dark is not the place that grace goes to die, but that the deepest dark is the place that grace goes to be reborn. Let me say that again, that the deepest dark is not the place that grace goes to die, but that the deepest dark is the place that grace goes to be reborn. The gospels and the story of the birth of Jesus, the story of the birth of Jesus is amplifying the story that creation has been proclaiming since the very beginning. Whether you're looking at at creation or you're looking at Christ, it's this same story The darkness will not overcome the light. And when things are the darkest, this is when you find the rebirth of the light. This is when you find the rebirth of grace. This is where you find the new radiance that will overcome the darkness. And what a beautiful proclamation this is. Have you faced any darkness lately? Have you dealt with any heaviness? Have you wrestled with any doubt, any fear, any uncertainty, any loss? Have you felt like the days are getting shorter, like the night is growing longer? Have you felt like you've been sitting in the darkness now for months on end and you're desperate for the light to be reborn? You're desperate for the new day to begin. God, when is this going to end? When is this going to end? When will I see the the light begin to be reborn? This is the message of Christmas. This is the hope of Christmas. That in that darkness, that darkness that you're so ready to be on the other side of, that darkness is not the end. Darkness is not the place where your hope goes to die. The darkness is where the hope and the grace 
will be reborn. The story of the birth of Jesus is amplifying the story of creation that the creation has been proclaiming since the very beginning. That Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness and darkness has not overcome it. And that, my friends, is a reason to celebrate. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and being a part of our Christmas series. We hope that this is blessing you and your family and helping you discover a new way to look at the Advent season. If you're looking for some material to supplement and further the discussion and the reflection that you're having in this series, we would be happy for you to check out our daily Advent content that's accessible for all ages and all members of your family. If you want to check that out, head over to our website, thefoundryc.org slash Advent. Again, we'll have that in our show notes as well if you'd like to check that out. It's awesome content that our family life pastor Hunter Mertz has put together. We hope that that is something that you can engage with to further uh, your reflection and your discovery as we go through this series. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next time here on the Foundry Church Podcast. Again, my name is Hank Taylor, digital pastor here at the Foundry. We're grateful for you. We love you. We'll see you next time. Thank you.